And I have one thumb, the, the important thumb. So, okay, there's the, 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 the secondary thumb. But we just, you know, that, that thumb just has, we're just trying to make that person feel better. You know, like there's a possibility they have some kind of control here. Okay, here we go. Off and running a little bit. I, I, before I get started, I keep waiting for something to exclude Ezekiel 38. And instead, all I find is things that confirm Ezekiel 38. It just keeps happening. The, the Confederacy is so interesting to me because the Syrians are involved. I expect the Turks to be involved at some point, the Turkish uh, nation to be there uh, at some point. But now I'm watching the election in France, whether or not that will turn to pro-Putin as opposed to uh, where it is now. So we'll have to see. Uh, but also the the opposition is primarily the, U- the U.K., of course, it is the United States, uh, Canada is involved, Australia is involved. So you see the, the lion, which is the largest empire in the history of humanity, uh, and now is still functioning, just as the Bible said it would. The young lions and the lion are the, in the opposition to uh, the Magog-Gog position, which is what Russia has been identified as in, in Ezekiel 38. Okay, enough of that. I just find it so interesting and very exciting. April 17, 2022, lecture discussion number uh, 171 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, Genesis 15. And this, of course, is a special First Fruits discourse today because First Fruits is today. Now, we, uh, the Gentiles, we are so convoluted, we think it's Ishtar or Ishtar or whatever you want to say, but it is not. It is first fruits, and it lines up today with the uh, with a t- typical Catholic position. So that's very interesting to me. I, I always think that when that happens, that that's a good thing. So this is a special first fruits lecture, if you will, though it's going to take a while to unveil how that is so. Uh, and it may not seem like it's so until the very end, and I might not get to the very end. And so uh, that's where, how we're going to go today. For those of you who endured uh, lecture number 170 last week, all I can say is your certificates of endurance will be forthcoming. And both of you might remember from last week that I had announced the goal of bonding Genesis 15 to Galatians 3. Every time I, I, to, I want to do that to as many of the vast Internet audience as viable, let me restate the objective here. No matter when you find yourself studying or reading Galatians 3, instantly I want you to know that the Old Testament complement is the promise made to Abraham at Genesis 15, the blessing to Abraham by the Lord God himself almighty. That that is what I want to happen now. So Galatians and three and Genesis fifteen. I want you to begin to start thinking of them as a unit. And the key word of Genesis fifteen, of course, is to believe. I'm going to write one thing about Genesis fifteen. I'm going to say it's belief. That's the substrate, that's the underlying power, if you want to think of it that way, to Genesis 15. The Hebrew word there occurs only once in the Old Testament at Genesis 15. I could try to pronounce it as Wahimin. Okay, it occurs only at this place at Genesis 15.6. That's the first mention, the first believe in, that occurs in, in Scripture. And a long, long time ago I began to emphasize the first mention of words. So here at 15.6 of Genesis is the first mention of belief or believing. 
And it's it's in the context of what's going to go on in Genesis 15, which is fantastically interesting, I hope, for you. And first mentions are important to recognize. And making 15.6 of Genesis, that makes 15.6 of Genesis even more so consequential because it is where belief begins, if you want to think of it that way, in the Bible. And that, I think, is extraordinary. Genesis 15 announces, introduces for the first time in Scripture, the towering principle of true salvation. So, so far we've had 14 chapters, and now we have the truth of salvation here. The salvific process. The salvific essentials, if you will. In other words, started out with that, didn't I? How is it that you are saved? What is the salvation process? And Genesis 15, for the first time in the Bible, all the way to Genesis 15. Now, finally, if you want to think of finally, but here is where God puts belief and salvation side by side. That is extraordinary. Genesis 15 is unbelievably complicated. Now, because today is the feast day of first fruits. It's the feast day of first fruits. And that, of course, is the, is the feast day that Christ had chosen and intended to resurrect himself. Here we are. And because of that, I need to infiltrate into this line of examination that Genesis 15 results from Genesis 14. I know. How does he do it, right? I'm saying to you that Genesis 15 occurs because of Genesis 14. Where else can you get that? I mean, who can teach you that? It's incredible insight. You're paying more money. As you know, Genesis 14 resolves the end of Genesis 14. That's the shed of Lamelor. That is a lot being captured and all of the material that's there. And, of course, those are pictures of uh, the Antichrist ultimately. Genesis 14 resolves, however, with Melchizedek. And that is critical. He is called the King of Peace. He is called the King of Jehovah Jireh Salam. That's, of course, Genesis 22, as we discussed before. Jehovah Jireh Salam. God will provide himself. That is where Jerusalem comes from. And he is called the king of Jerusalem. If you say Jehovah Jireh Salam, you come to Jerusalem, right? If you say it fast enough. Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of God provides himself. Again, Genesis 22. He's also the priest of the God Most High. So he is the priest of God. Think about that. He's the king of Jerusalem and he's the high priest. And now what comes into, into focus here is Numbers 3, 10 through 13. Because 3, 10 through 13 of Numbers says to us, and again, uh, I've covered this a little bit already. Uh, this is God speaking to Moses. And he says to Moses there, only the Aaronic lines can be priests. Only them. The tribe of Levi shall be appointed. The outsider who comes near the priesthood shall be put to death. And Melchizedek obviously seems to be in violation of Numbers 3, 10 through 13. But Melchizedek is not. And how is this so? Hebrews 7, 1. So... 
and again, we've already covered this a little bit, but Melchizedek is not identified as being in the Aaronic line. In fact, the opposite. He's not a Levite. But yet he is the high priest of God himself, and he is the king of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah. So he's from the, he's going through the Davidic line, the line of the son of David, if you will. That's the Judah line. Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty himself, is the Messiah King of Israel. John 1.49, John 12.13, Matthew 27.11, Zechariah 9.9, Psalms 2.6, Revelation 20.11, Revelation 19.16, and Zechariah 6.13. There's no controversy, no disputing that Jesus Christ is the Lion King, not the movie guy. He is the, he is the Lion King of Judah, the Messianic King. And Jesus Christ is also the high priest of the Most High God. Able to enter the holy place of God, the one that's made without hands, the original true holy place, which is Hebrews 9.24. That is the holy place in the heavens. He can walk into the holy place, the holy of holies, in the heavenly estate. The one on the earth, the holy place on earth, is just merely a copy that the earthly holy place is a copy of the one in heaven. And that again is Hebrews 9.24. So here I've got this issue now. i got both Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. They possess the titles of king and high priest, but neither is in contravention to Numbers 3.10-13. through 13. So how does this work? Now Christ, of course, puts himself to death. And that, that enters in, in, in kind of a sideline. I won't go into that particular aspect of it today, but I just wanted to bring it up because people ask me if I know these things. And if I don't mention them, they think I'm an idiot. So here we go. Christ and Melchizedek are the only ones of which this is stated, that they are both king and high priest. The obvious question now is, how, why? Why are they the only ones? And how is it that they're the only ones? Both Melchizedek and Jesus Christ are, again, Hebrews 7.1, King of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, and it's one of the great mysteries of Scripture. It hasn't really actually been explained. I don't believe. Now, there are some who have thought that they have explained it, but I don't think they have. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is bothersome to many, and there are countless. Let me take my water here. When I say many, I mean the theologian community, the academians. They do not like this discussion very much. There are countless commentaries that just take this discussion and they just kick the can. They just punt it. They come up with all kinds of really odd positions, in my view. Positions that don't resolve it. Positions that do not give you a complete understanding, in my view. And we'll get to that as we go along here. They actually, many of them conclude that, not, that it can't be resolved. It's impossible to, to, there's no resolution as to the person that is Melchizedek. It's impossible to make any determination. That is very common, and I think that's what you'll find most of the time. And I don't subscribe to the can-kicking position, as most of you are aware. I've talked about this before, but never on first fruits. Today, it's a special first fruits lecture. And it also happens to be where I'm at, right? So, so I, I have manipulated myself once more. I submit that assembling the verses that describe Melchizedek, go get them all and combining them together and comparing them uh, 
to Christ is going to lead to one singular conclusion and one only. And that one conclusion is going to satisfy all of the evidentiary pieces. I think that's the case. For example, give you some examples here. Hebrews 7.3 Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor beginning of I'm sorry, nor, nor beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. That's Hebrews 7.3. So he has no beginning of days. He has no beginning. Melchizedek does not have a beginning, nor does he have an end of life. He has neither one of those. That is, a, that is how Paul uh, describes him in, in Hebrews 7.3. And Hebrews 7.3 becomes extraordinary. Of who else is it said in Scripture that he has no beginning and he has no end? Who else is said about that? Duh, is that question, right? It's obvious. How about Revelation 1.8, where Jesus Christ says himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He doesn't really say the Alpha and Omega. What he really says is that he is the Elepta. That's what he says. The Elepta. The beginning and the end. Now, the Elepta is... I don't have time to get into all of it today. It is profound. That's what Christ says He is. He says He He is, and He was, and He and He is to come. The Almighty God Himself. The Aleph Tav is the Hebrew word. If you want to, <coughs> it is used for something that by now you're bored of. But Aleph Tav equals infinity. In Hebrew. So Christ says he is the infinity. When he says he is the Aleph Tav. The high, to repeat it, the Aleph Tav is Hebrew for infinity. It's also, you, you'll also see this. You'll see it called the Et. You'll see it written this way, the Eth. Probably pronounced the same. Christ says that he is the Aleph Tav at Revelation 1.11. In Revelation 1.17, he has what? No beginning and no end, because he is the infinity. Uh, there's all kinds of things now. Let me just divert into a mess. The fourth word of Genesis 1.1. Go have fun with that. Genesis 1.1 is seven words. The fourth word is the Aleph Tav. Y-H-V-H. It's untranslatable, I should say that, so it attaches to Y-H-V-H. No one can translate what it is. The Hebrew language, the alf, the alphabet. You can make, you can figure out where this translates to in English, right? The Aleph Tav is the language of God. It is the, everything that He has spoken. It's, it incorporates all of that. And it is they believe in the Hebrew that it is the building blocks of all matter. The language is the building blocks. And so you should recognize all that. It's, Aleph Tav is not a word. It's a concept. It is a symbol. And again, it is the fourth word of Genesis 1-1 and it is untranslatable. And it, uh, it associates with, with the YHVH. So all of that material is in the Aleph Tav. So when Christ says, I am the Aleph Tav, there's a monster amount of information that has to be sifted through. 
the Jewish Messiah. Guess what he's called by the Hebrews? He's called the Aleph Tav. And so Christ is claiming to be the Messianic crown. Or the Messianic king. Okay, so now back to Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 1 through 26. All of Hebrews 7 conveys astonishing attributes that apply to Melchizedek. No time today to take them all in or delineate them or make a list. We just don't have time. I'll never make it because i got a big pile here. For those for today, we're just going to notice that the Aleph Tav, Hebrews 7, 3, is applied to Melchizedek. He has no beginning. He has no end. So he also is assigned by Paul in Hebrews as the, the Messianic king. And you might be thinking by now, what does Melchizedek have to do with Genesis 15? And you'd be wise to think that. How, or first fruits for that matter. Aleph Tav, to kick one more thing in there so you can see it, it also talks about the strength of the covenant. The covenant, uh, obviously, of, of Abraham. So... That's got to be dealt with as well. And I don't, again, no time to do all of that. So what does this have to do with Genesis 15? What does Melchizedek have to do with Genesis 15? Many are going to think that the, that the HTRP is just attempting to, to say that Melchizedek is participating in Genesis 15. And, uh, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Melchizedek is participating in Genesis 15. I'm going to say it this way. Genesis 14, especially Genesis 14, 18 through 24, flows immediately into Genesis 15. We make a mistake. We think verses are numbered in the Bible. They are not. The verses is a man-made, man-made construction. It is a man-conceived idea. It's, it's very, very interesting, and it's, I'm glad it's there. But we also think the chapters are in the Bible. There are no chapters in the Bible. It is one continuous flow. Genesis 14 and Genesis 15 is a single entity. There's no commas. Those are all human construction or human concepts. So I am saying, to repeat myself here, Genesis 14, especially Genesis 14, 18 through 24, is immediate into Genesis 15. There is no delay. There's no break. There's no intermission. There's no interval. And that means that Melchizedek never leaves Abraham. Because he is in authority in Genesis 14, 18 through 24, and he stays into authority in Genesis 15. And the question there becomes, where did the king of Sodom go? If the king of Sodom has left, why did he leave? Now, you'll have to read Genesis 14, 18 through 24 to understand what I'm talking about. But there's a meeting there, but Melchizedek and Abraham and the king of Sodom. And also the captured people. And the king of Sodom appears to leave. Why would he leave? Matthew 4.11, Luke 4.8. I just gave you the reason he left. Did he leave? Leave, leave, leave is off a tree. Did he leave by his own volition? Again, Matthew 4.11, Luke 4.8. Or was he sent away? But I'm getting the horse behind the cart. Back to Hebrews 7.3. Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. My goodness. Okay. First he says that Melchizedek is the Aleph Tav. And now Paul is saying that he is made like the Son of God. Now again, the Holy Spirit through Paul. This is inspired uh, writing here. This is the scripture, inspired scripture. Living, breathing is the Bible. Now I must concede 
that a significant contingent of theological academians seize upon this word like. They say that Melchizedek is like. He's not the Son of God. He is like the Son of God. Again, he's called the Aleph Ta. The Greek word here, uh, and I can't pronounce these things very well, aphomoi ovmenos. Um, and, and another one of these words, which in all of the New Testament appears only in Hebrews 7.3. It's the only place it says that word is there. And they translate it like. Now, that's a problem for me because there's nothing to corroborate. Uh, there's nothing to uh, authenticate that particular rendering. In other words, the translation that we have in our English Bibles may not be accurate here because there's no way to validate it by comparing it to other contexts. All we have is the context of, of Hebrews 7. and the, So that's our only recourse. That's the only context that we can use. So I have to pay attention to what else is said in Hebrews 7. And obviously there's some fantastic things said there where maybe like is not the proper translation. So what is the ex- explanation that provides the highest assessment of Christ when I translate these words in Hebrews 7.3? Because that's what I want to do. I want to have the highest possible position on Christ. Not, not one that is low. What rendering, what meaning that can I use here that is the one that has, is the most Christ uh, honoring, the most the one that is the most worshiping of Jesus Christ. Obviously, Genesis 14 and Genesis 15 will intrinsically factor into the equation because there's always math. All you have to do is go back to Genesis 14 and 15 compared to Hebrews 7, 3, and you'll figure out what is being said there with just the context, without having the original Greek, without knowing what the Hebrew is. You can just kind of say the context will decide this for me. And so is the, is the right interpretation that he is not God here in, in Hebrews 7.3 or do I have a mistake that if I think that that's the case? There's always math. Someone always tells you that there will be math. And so and you can never say that no one told me that because we will always tell you. In the interest of full discourse with the spirit of full disclosure, I will begin with the typical responses you will find from those who do not accept Melchizedek as the pre-incarnate Christ. They do not think he's the Aleph Tau. They do not think he's the Messiah King. They don't understand why he's the King of Jerusalem and he is the King of Peace. They don't understand that. And they don't understand why he's the High Priest. Like I said, they just kick the can away, go that he's some kind of shadowy figure. We can't resolve it. Let's go home. And I don't think you can because Genesis 15 is there. Okay, so they, this is what they think. They contend that uh, uh, Hebrews 7.3 should not read without father and without mother. That's incorrect, they say. Or without genealogy. But should instead read without records. That's what it should read without records of Melchizedek's father and mother and genealogy. And made like becomes, they will translate it all the time like this, made to be like the Son of God. So they had the made to be. And they are arguing essentially this, that the birth certificate and the death certificates exist, but were lost on Melchizedek. He actually had a beginning, he had an end, but we lost all records of him. 
that they were either misfiled or they were on microfiche and they were destroyed. I should say, if, if you know what microfiche is, you might be old. I'll give you a hint. It's not a small fish. Okay. The question becomes then, is this a bureaucratic failure? Is that the position that you have? That the fact that we can't find the records of Melchizedek, so therefore that's what it means. It means we can't find the records. It doesn't mean that he is, he is made the son of God. It doesn't mean that. We can't have that. So again, the Syriac Peshitta suggests something far more significant. Because the Syriac Aramaic Peshitta declares the Aleph Tav to be the Messiah King. So we have that element here. We cannot say, well, let's, the Syriac Peshitta suggests that, uh, that it's this way that there is no genealogy. But the Syriac Peshitta also says that the Aleph Tav is the Messiah King. So you can go ahead and say, we don't understand the genealogy, but here's this Aleph Tav. And they cite the, the Syriac or the Aramaic Peshitta, and they say that, see, that's the one that says he's without a record of his genealogy. Well, that doesn't help you, because as I just pointed out, that same translation tells you that he is the Aleph Tav. So, I, again, I've tried to say this as many times as I can. Take all your translations you can go on the internet. You can go to these different places. They'll list every single translation. And you can begin to understand which one do you think makes the most sense. Which one is the most Christ-honoring here? Which one solves the problems? Uh, and, and, uh, and there are many problems with Melchizedek, as I said before, in the academic world. I, of course, ask the obvious questions, which is what, what I do all the time as much as I can. How many genealogies existed for kings and high priests at the time of the time of Abraham? How many genealogies were there? Apart from the genealogies that we know, Genesis 4, 16 through 25, Genesis 5, Genesis 9, 18 through 28, Genesis 10, we know those genealogies existed. Those are the genealogies, the Mosaic genealogies. And so I'm going to say to you, how many existed besides those? And the answer is, not many. Okay, the answer is, none. Records of family history, related events, non-biblical family histories and events are not discovered until many centuries post-Abraham and Moses. Post-Moses and Abraham. Many centuries is hundreds of years. More math. There's always math. Someone will tell you to do the math every time. Keep doing the math. You can't get away from it. Math always wins. Are we made of math? Remember that question? Probably we are. You should embrace it. The point, yea, a point, is that no one at the time of Melchizedek and Abraham had a recorded genealogy with the exception of the Old Testament. None. So those people that said we can't find any records of Melchizedek, that's actually testifying of something. Note that Melchizedek is not in the genealogical record of the Bible, the biblical genealogies. He's not in there. Allow me to reemphasize that. He's not in the biblical genealogies. Why not? 
This is somebody that's extraordinary. You would think that he would be listed, but he's not listed. Then why isn't he listed? And if you conclude that he's listed because he's not supposed to be listed, then where are you now? You're back to the Aleph Tah. So we should notice the absence of this great man. Hebrews 7, 4, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Now this is the Apostle Paul, not anybody else. Apostle Paul writes, now consider how great this man. Now, a lot of your translations are going to say, now consider how great was this man. Not in the text. There is no was there. How great this man to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the plunder. So Abraham worshipped this man. We have more problems here now. We have a man that is great who is worshipped by Abraham. So I want to know who he is. Now, Obviously, I've already told you what I think it is, but I'm just hoping that you'll come to the conclusion because you recognize it for what it is. Was is not in the text. Allow me to emphasize that. Was not again. Notice how many times I'm re-emphasizing things. It's a translation error. It's a reference to time. And it doesn't belong in Hebrews 7.4. Melchizedek has already been described as timeless. Therefore, again, Hebrews 7.4 should not have added that word. Paul clearly is building the case. Now, this is Apostle Paul. He's building the case that Melchizedek was a great man and has no records of his birth or death, but who is made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest continually. And now we have to ask that question about how is it that one is made like infinity, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence? Because that's what Christ is. How do you make somebody like that? What is the making process? Well, there is none. You can't make somebody omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent. You, you can't do any of that. Infinite. You cannot make infinity. Inf- infinity, again, is not a number. It's a concept like zero. And yes, I have the view that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Don't throw rocks at me. Hebrew ends, Hebrews ends with Paul's signature, grace be with you all, amen. That's what he ends his books with. Prior to that, he references Timothy. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free. So, whoever wrote the, the book of Hebrews knows who Timothy is. Whoa, it just so happens that Paul wrote Timothy letters and Timothy was a disciple of Paul. And I submit that Paul is citing 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 21 when he says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. So he would cite something that he wrote to Timothy in Hebrews. So enough of that. Anyway, what does it require to remain a high priest continually? What does that require? You're a high priest continually. What does continually mean? Continually is unceasingness. It doesn't ever end. The Greek word here is dienikos. Hebrews 10.14, the translation of that particular word is forever, as does Hebrews 10.12, also forever. He is a priest forever. The theme of Hebrews 10 is that the law is not, a good, is not the good thing to come. It says it flat out. The law is not the good thing to come. What is the good thing to come? The good thing to come is the salvation. 
The law is not salvation. That's what Hebrews 10 says. Now, I know a lot of people say you're saved by the law and some other grace thing. We don't know which one has the most. Well, guess which one always is the most in those theologies or those doctrines or those churches? Yeah, the law becomes the most. And we talked about that last week. One law, one small bit of law destroys grace. There can't be grace and law. There's only grace or law. The salvation of the is that which is the good thing. And the law only has a shadow of the good thing, it says in Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. The sacrifices which can never save anyone, they must be done forever, unceasingly. That's what Paul said. Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Hebrews 10, 4. So, get that out of the way. Melchizedek is a high priest for all time. So, how is that? How do you become a high priest for all time? Who installs you as the high priest for for infinity? Melchizedek has no beginning. He has no ending. He's the Aleph Ta. He's the king of the new city of Jerusalem. He's the king of God that provides himself. He's the He's the Jehovah Jireh Shalom, and he's the high priest forever of all time. All time, he's the high priest. So now the question becomes, how many high priests do I have for all time? Do you have a two position or a one position? I'm trying to point out, yes, she is, she is surreptitiously going like this. One, there's a one position. But understand, the two position is probably the dominant position. And I think the reason for it, because they've never assigned Melchizedek to Genesis 15, which we're going to do today. So why am I pounding away on Melchizedek? What's the point? Get a point. Have a point. Finally, no. I could go on. Because I'm prone to do that, right? What's the time? <laughs> Kill the wabbit. Paul repeats Hebrews 7 6, saying that Melchizedek's ancestry is not traceable to the Levitical priesthood. He's not a Levite. There's no possibility he's a Levite. Why is it not traceable? How come? Well, we can't find it because the records were destroyed, or we burned the microfish, whatever your excuse may be. Because there is no ancestry. That's why you can't trace his ancestry, because he doesn't have an ancestry. What does that now mean? Therefore, Melchizedek is in conflict with Numbers 3.10, they will say. But Paul is arguing that Melchizedek is not in conflict with Numbers 3.10. To the contrary, Numbers 3.10 does not apply to Melchizedek. That's what Paul is saying. He isn't put to death for being the high priest because it doesn't apply to him. Why doesn't it apply to him? Who else does it not apply to? And in fact, Melchizedek has authority, superiority over the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 7, 9 through 19, Psalm 110, 4. So how does Melchizedek have this superiority? Where did he get it from? Psalm 110 makes it completely clear. Settles it, in my opinion. Jesus Christ, the Messianic King, will also be the high priest forever in the Melchizedekian order. That's what it says. Now, Genesis 15 begins with after these things. After these things. People read that. 
and they don't stop and think about it. After these things is Genesis 15. What's the obvious question here? Mm-hmm. What are the these things? What does it mean? What these things is it? After these things, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Okay. Not a dream. Not a dream. A vision. A difference with a distinction. The vision continues for hours. Genesis 15.12 Not a dream. Abraham was fully conscious. He could perceive. How the vision that the, that the Lord God presented was designed, we have no clue. But that's what Abraham got. He is inside the vision. Abraham is. He's fighting the vultures. He's cutting the animals. Does he think this is a, a dream? No. That to him, this is absolutely a real event. So what is this vision? How that, again, how that vision God presented was designed, uh, we don't know. But one thing we do, we can do is cast aside all your simplistic explanations. Abraham was not watching TV and he wasn't imagining things. Think as complexly as you can. Think complication at the highest level. Abraham is participating in something that he believes, I think, is absolutely real. And it probably was absolutely real. But there's no way to explain it. The after these things, what were they? They were the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, the, the high priest of the most high God, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom together. There are riches, plunder that have been gathered by Abraham and his army. There's tithing and worship to Melchizedek. And the people are in contention there between the king of Sodom and Abraham. And that is uh, Genesis 14, 18 through 24. So those are the after these things. And I point out before that the king of Sodom was killed at Genesis 14.10. He's dead. So it's necessary to identify the king of Sodom that's at Genesis 14.21. Who is he? Is he the son? He's the next guy in line? And that king of Sodom at Genesis 14.21 has no desire. He doesn't want any of the spoils. He doesn't want any of the money. He doesn't want any of the riches. What does he want? He wants the people. The king of Sodom wants the people. So who is this king of Sodom in Genesis 14.21? Where did he come from? I have the highest priest of the, that could ever be. I have the infinite Aletav. I have the king of Jerusalem, the high priest of the Most High God, and I have the king of Sodom who wants the people. And Abraham. And the people. And the money. That's what I've got. Those are the after these things. And obviously, uh, oh, uh, obviously Melchizedek is in opposition, direct opposition to this king of Sodom. See, why is this king of Sodom even negotiating with Abraham? Why, why is he, what's the point? Why just not seize it all? Why not take the people and the riches, for example? Who's stopping him from doing that? Abraham? Give me a break. Can't be. Obviously, Melchizedek is stopping him. And Abraham concedes that the riches are the property of the king of Sodom, Genesis 14.23. Though you have the riches, those are yours. King of Sodom says, I will give you all of this. You give me the people. 
He's, he's needing Abraham. He needs Abraham to give him the people. Why? What's in that? Why does the king of Sodom, this particular king of Sodom, not the dead one, not the 1410, right? Not that one. I gotta remember if I'm in the right, but not the one that died, but this one. Why does he want the people and not the riches? And obviously I am equating that we are once again being allowed to see a Matthew 4, Luke 4, Job 1, Job 2, Genesis 3.15, 1 Peter 3.19, Jude 9, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Psalm 10, Genesis 6, Genesis 1-2, Revelation 9, Revelation 12, situation here. That's what we're watching one more time. We get it here at Genesis 15. The after these things... And what is that? What did I just describe? That is where God and, and Satan are in conflict, in contention over what? Over angels or people or both. Because that's how this all begins, right? This contention. Satan is contending for angels and he gets a third of them. Satan is contending for people and he gets a multitude of them with God. There is that tension. Constantly. And it's going on today. It's going on this minute. It's going on at all times. Anyway, after these things, I assume this king of Sodom is sent away just like he was in Matthew and Luke 4. Melchizedek and Abraham uh, are now there. And I think the people have dispersed. And therefore, Melchizedek and Abraham are now completely alone. Now, how much attention do you suppose this contestation between Melchizedek and the Sodomic, Sodomic, I can't say this word, Sodomitic, there we go, king of exceedingly wickedness, Genesis 13, 13. Sodom is exceedingly wicked in Genesis 13, 13. That's before Genesis 14. Again, how does he do that? How does he, never mind, it's math. How much Attention, do you think the angelic realm gave this king of Sodom, Melchizedek, Abraham needing? They gave it a lot of attention. Yes, I am proposing that the after these things was a relatively short interval. So in other words, after these things was probably almost immediate. How am I doing for time? Okay, I can, I can rush. Abraham's refusal to give the persons to the king of Sodom and his disavowal of the Earthly riches of this evil king directly results in the vision that is given by the Lord. It's a building block. You see this happen. He refuses the people. He says, I won't take, I'm sorry, he refuses the riches. I'll take the people. I won't give you the people. So Abraham does not give the king of Sodom the people, nor does he take the riches. That's a building block for Genesis 15. Now we go into Genesis 15 because the after these things is quick. It's not a long time. It happened immediately, so Melchizedek is there with Abraham, and now that's the situation, I believe. And if I'm right, duh, and Melchizedek is himself the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, 6, that explains, as an aside here, Genesis 18:3, because at 18:3, Abraham immediately has recognition of the three men in Lot's reaction at Genesis 19.1, where he also recognizes that these are angelic beings. How, how is that going on? 
Remember, Lot was in the person's group. He's in the people. Genesis 14.21, Genesis 14.12, Genesis 18.16-33. So Abraham and Lot saw Melchizedek. Both of them saw Melchizedek. Did Abraham recognize Christ's voice at Genesis 18? Or if you want to think this way, did he recognize Melchizedek's voice at Genesis 18 when, when, when that, that event occurs? How did Paul know about Melchizedek? How do you know about that? Paul, like Abraham, Acts 23.11, Paul has direct contact. Acts 22.18, Acts 26.14-17, Galatians 3.8, Galatians 3.14. Paul knows things. If you haven't noticed, and how could you? We are on page 11. 75% of the Internet audience is gone. I know. By gone, I mean invert or inert, sorry. Somnolent, hibernated state. Traditionally, this occurs between pages 3 and pages 3, as we have revealed before. But for the certificated that are endeavoring to persevere two weeks consecutively, oh my gosh, good for you, both of you guys, continuing uh, to trudge forward with me, obviously. Actually, probably semi-obviously. I should start saying semi-obviously more because it's not obviously very often. I am advancing the hypothesis, and I don't think it's a hypothesis, that Melchizedek at Genesis 14 is pivotal, it's decisive with respect to the revealing of the two birds mystery. That's how it all starts to fit together. To to recapitulate, if Melchizedek is proximate to Abraham, not merely as a witness, but as the directive active authority of Genesis 15, he was the directive active authority of Genesis 14 that just happened right before Genesis 15. Did he continue as the directive active authority? I think he did. I think it's obvious that he did. Then the reasons that the two birds are not cut down the middle, they're not cut in the mist, becomes illuminated. The correlations now, I think, are certain. Genesis 14:18. Melchizedek, he's bringing bread and wine. Who else brought bread and wine? If you want to think of it that way. He's bringing it in the same manner that Christ does. When Christ divides the bread and in, in, in the giving of his body and the blood, his symbolism for his own body and blood is the bread and the wine. And the bread is broken and divided. And the cup of wine is shared also. So we have Melchizedek absolutely be doing the first communion service ever recorded in the Bible. Who could that possibly be? Did Christ know when he is doing the communion service? In Matthew 26, 26 through 29, that Melchizedek had already done it? Dave says that if Dave exists, that Christ is just lucky. Just happened to grab that. Luke 22, 14 through 20. The cup of blood, wine, is for the exemption from sin and death. Matthew 26, 28 lays that out. So now an easy question. Why did Melchizedek bring bread and wine, body and blood, to Abraham? What was his reasons? And is it the same reasons as Christ did it? And I say, duh. Obviously they are the same. Every bit of it's the same. So here is the moment where, uh, here's the moment, the Genesis 18, where Jesus Christ comes to Abraham. And Abraham knew instantly that Christ, the Lord God himself, had come again. What's the obvious question? Abraham knew that one of the three men is 
the God of creation in the flesh, the pre-incarnate Christ, the invisible God made visible, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Abraham knew that instantly. Read the text. So how did Abraham know that? Recognition must materialize here. Recognition requires a prior experience. Memory must be activated, right? That's what recognition is. The memory process is an acquisition, a storage, an encoding, and it's a retrieval at the least. Now, mine is not so good at retrieval now. Memory is another prima facie evidence of consciousness and free will. Free will. Yeah, I'm saying free will. I could explain why free will is included here, but I won't. I won't do it because oh, here we go. I mean, I'm gone forever. I've got to watch the time. But free will is included here. Okay, maybe a teeny bit. Option one. Do memories spontaneously erupt without your input? Do they just come? Boom. Or do, option two. Do you choose to invoke your memories? Consider that. And is your choice... If if you have chosen to exercise option two, is that a free will event? Do you choose to recall your memories? Or is it a super determined circumstance? Free, feel free to just mess with that, you guys, while I continue on with John 8.56. John 8.56. Why John 8.56? I know what you're thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. Is it is does the guy really, the HTRP, really got a plan here? Or is the supposed HTRP just throwing stuff at the dry erase board? It's the most holy platinum dry erase board, as an aside. Uh, it's not just any dry erase board. And, and I'm just throwing stuff at the board in the hope and prayer that's something that will explain the two birds. That, is that what I'm doing? Okay, John 8, 54 through 59. i got to read that. Got to hurry now. Really hurry. I know that you all went to church this week. Today, and I know you heard the exact same Genesis 14:15 lecture in Melchizedek, because it's done every Ishtar. Okay, by everybody, and okay, nobody ever does it. Okay, let's see where I'm at. 54. Jesus answered, "If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If it is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him, because you can't know God, because God is infinite and you're not, and he is infinite and he can. That's how it works. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. And then they, they get really mad at him because he says he's the I am. And they try to kill him. Good luck with that. Killing God. Okay? And 8.56 is what we need for Genesis 15. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. When is the my day of Christ with Abraham? Where did that happen? When Abraham saw Christ and said that's Christ's day, where was it? I'm saying to you it's Genesis 14 and 15. It's Melchizedek. It also could be Genesis 18 and Genesis 22 or all three. Because the three make up a whole. But I'm, I'm saying the first time he saw the my day of Christ was with Melchizedek at Genesis 14 and 15. <coughs> Excuse me. And realize that Genesis 18, 16 through 33 is this astonishing triune dramatic theodicy, which I've talked about before. I'm, I'm on it. I'm hurrying. 
that is displayed for the angelic realm. That's what's going on in Genesis 18. It's another one of these Job 1, Job 2, Matthew 4, Luke 4 events. Situations. That's a theological term. Situation. It means Matthew 4, Luke 4. Or it does now. Sounds like it's religious, doesn't it? Situation. Propitiation. But I'm running out of time. One of the triune Godhead, because there's three that are one, one of the triune Elohim is requiring justice and judgment because the sins of the men of Sodom, of mankind, if you want to extend it to mankind, is great and very grievous. And we're looking at a Genesis 6 kind of evil that is occurring in Sodom at this time. And so we have Genesis 18, 20 through 23, where Abraham asked Jesus Christ, will you sweep away Tispah, the righteous with the wicked. And some Bibles will say destroy. But the word is sweep away. And so that is Abraham in the role of the loving kindness that wills that none should perish, colliding with the holy judge of all the earth. Second Peter three nine, Genesis eighteen twenty five. Which as you know, that is the cup of Matthew twenty six. The cup of Matthew twenty six, thirty nine through forty two is directly conveyed to Genesis fifteen seventeen. I hope that made sense to somebody. I have the smoking furnace and I have the flaming light that's the same as the cup. And what's happening in Genesis 18 is is the cup or the flaming torch of light and the smoking fire pot furnace of judgment going through the cut pieces. All of that is the same event. The smoking fire pot furnace and the flaming torch light passing in agreement through the dead animals is what's happening with Abraham saying, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The loving kindness of God that says none should perish versus the holy judge. So, note the significance of the deaths of the animals right here. Just say it. Because the animals are dead and the flaming torch light passing through with this fire pot furnace smoking. Those animals are dead. That's a very, very important little piece of information. Now, where am I now? Margaret... How did Abraham remember what the Lord God looked like? The only possibility, in my opinion, is Melchizedek. When he saw the Lord God, he said, that's the Lord God. How did he know that? He had seen him before. Where did he see him? Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. The only possibility, in my opinion, is Melchizedek. Only Melchizedek fits the mountain of information, the deluge of evidence. It shouts out, it screams out for Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not a picture of Christ. He's the high priest and the king of Jehovah Jireh Salaam. He is Jesus Christ himself. That's a pre-incarnate Christ. That is Christ come, just like he did at Genesis 18. He's the one that destroyed Sodom, Genesis 19. And only this explains the person that is Melchizedek in my most humbler of all humblest opinions. Finally, everybody loves finally. How does Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and 15 testify the first feast day of first fruits? How does he do it? Well, first fruits is the day chosen by the triune Godhood that Christ would resurrect himself on. John 2, 19 through 22. He's going to resurrect himself on first fruits. Nobody can resurrect him. He has to resurrect himself. All of the triune Godhood, the oneness, the Elohim, resurrects Christ. Infinity must resurrect infinity. Okay, Genesis 14.18 then equals Genesis 15.18. 
that, I believe, is really important information. Genesis 15 is under the complete administration of Melchizedek. It's the revealing of reckon. I'm sorry. It is the revealing of resurrection. Ah. It is the revealing of resurrection as the mechanism. That's what Genesis 15 is doing. It is the revealing of, revel, of revelation. I can't do it. It is the revealing of resurrection as a mechanism, it, the, as the instrument or the structure by which all who believe, Genesis 15.6, Galatians 3.9, Romans 1.7, all who believe will inherit salvation, eternal life, as Christ defines life, Genesis 15.8. If Christ does not resurrect himself, then our faith, our belief, is empty, and we of all men are the most pitiable. You know what scripture that is, I hope, but Christ has resurrected himself and has become the first fruits of those who believe, Genesis 15.15. There's a fallen asleep element here. Falling asleep for the believers is not what people think. It is not some kind of death state unconsciousness. It's not. It is, it is when you are no longer in service, but you are still perfectly con- uh, conscious. And it is describing people who are believers. For, for since by Adam came death, by the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 22, 1 Corinthians 15, 46, 49, also came the resurrection unto life for all who believe. Even so, all who believe shall be made alive, shall be given the blessing of Abraham, the promises of Genesis 15, Galatians 3, 16, 13 through 16. Christ is the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. So let me reword that now. Hopefully I can get it right. If Christ does not resurrect himself, then our faith, our belief is empty and we of all men are the most pitiable. But Christ has, has resurrected himself. And has become the first fruits of all of those who believe. Genesis 15, 15. For since by Adam came death by the second Adam, also came the resurrection unto life for all that believe. Even so, all who believe shall be made alive, shall be given the blessing of Abraham. And the promises. And those are the promises of Genesis 15. Christ is the first fruits. And hopefully you'll recognize that I mixed, I compiled, I mixed it all together. Genesis 15 with Galatians 3, with 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 54, Romans 1, 17, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, Hebrews 5, Genesis 14. I put all of those together and made a sentence. They're all scriptural. They're all displayed there. Now, who is surprised that the Holy Spirit through Moses and through the Apostle Paul made all of these things lay down in perfect harmony? Because they do. Look at all those verses. Make one paragraph out of all of them. But don't use my pattern. Moses and Paul. Now, we got to look at Moses and Paul. They are very similar experiences. Oh, I should do that. I should say um, the, the construction season for Cliffside is occurring. I should have done that at the beginning, huh? Okay. Uh, and we, Lori and I, have got many things that we have to get done this summer. So we're going to start alternating. It'll begin in May. We're going to one more Sunday, and then we're going to start alternating uh, weeks um, so uh, so that we can get things done before I completely disintegrate into nothingness. And I'm very close. I've got a full schedule. I Many, many projects that I've got to get done. We need the money, and we've got to get these things done. So that's our plan. And we'll see as much as we can. We, we're not going to shut down, but we're going to start giving me weeks off 
every other week or so so that I can get things accomplished.